words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So, Lent, it's begun again. Uh, I always like Lent because, well, for the last three years I've liked Lent because it makes it a really easy mark for me to remember how long I've been in the parish, so, in this parish. So, three years ago I began my first Sunday. Lent. If I was to ask you what Lent was about, most of you would say, What's a time of uh, giving up things, um, fasting? On Wednesday night, I read out the following at our Ash Wednesday service. Let us therefore observe a holy Lent by self-examination and repentance, by prayer, fasting, self-denial, and giving to those in need, and by reading and meditating on the Word of God. It struck me as I read that, that it's a lot like Ramadan for Muslims. It has the same three pillars of prayer, fasting, and uh, almsgiving. And we traditionally, I mean, if you ask most people who have any idea of what Lent is about, they would kind of focus on the self-examination and repentance and maybe the fasting and self-denial. But it's good to be reminded that Lent is also about prayer and reading scripture and being aware of the needs and meeting the needs of those in need, particularly the poorest. At our service on Wednesday, in my little homily, my coho, I talked about Lent as a time to slow down. To embrace silence and stillness as a time to listen. It's partly what the giving things up is about, really. As we give things up, we make space to listen. I also talked about it as a time for developing new spiritual practices, new spiritual disciplines. Disciplines that help us listen and that help us live the gospel in new ways. Sometimes when we just fast, as lots of people do, then, well, the problem with that is, well, it's a good thing to do. Giving things up is good for us, and uh, it's spiritually good for us, and if we give up certain types of food, it's physically good for us. But it kind of feels like missing the point, really, and the point is that Lent is a time to pay much more attention to God. And if we're just giving things up because that's what we do, then we miss the point of what the giving things up is all about. And it has the further problem that, well, I don't know about you, but if I just give things up, by the end of Lent I feel pretty super virtuous. Look at me, I've given up whatever I've given up for all this time. And that doesn't seem to be what it's all about really. So maybe we just need to remember that Lent is about listening. And all the things we do help us listen. For the last three years, much of what I've said has had three underlying questions that seem to me to shape our understanding of who we are as a church and what our role is in this place here in Gate Park. And those three questions are, and I'm sure you could tell me what they are, at least I hope you could, whose are we, who are we, 
and what is ours to do? And I think the primary question for Lent, at least, is who are we? Who is God for us? Who is this God that we seek to follow? And I want to suggest that Lent offers us a chance to reflect on what the name and what on the names and images of God that we currently have and to reflect on which ones of those are helpful and which one of those we might be invited this Lent to let go of and what new ways of understanding God we might be invited to embrace. Our Lenten studies this year will help us engage in this in a more deliberate way. So, this morning's readings help us get into this in some way, especially the readings from Genesis and Mark, both of which are traditional readings for the first Sunday in Lent. For the First Testament, we alternate between the story of the fall and uh, the first covenant, which we heard this morning, and we always hear about Jesus in the wilderness in whatever gospel we're focusing on in that year. Uh, Although Mark is pretty brief, he doesn't have a lot of detail in there, unlike Matthew and Luke, so we've kind of expanded it out and we reheard some of the readings we've already been hearing so far this year. So, our First Testament reading, the New Covenant, the First Covenant, in fact. Now, the other reading, as I said, that we might have heard was the story of the fall when Eve was deceived by the serpent and she and Adam ate of the apple, the fruit of knowledge, and as a result they're cast out of Eden. Now there are a number of ways we can understand that story and in a way this story is pivotal because it kind of sets the theme for the rest of scriptures and how you understand this first story kind of shapes how you understand what happens after that. And so, one of the ways we can understand this story is that this is the symbolic of the moment when the relationship between humanity and God is severed. And so, within that, the rest of the story, particularly leading up to Christ, is the story of God working to restore that relationship, which is then restored when Christ comes, and particularly when Christ dies on the cross. So that's one way of understanding what happens in Eden. Another way of understanding it is that this is symbolic of when all of creation was imprisoned. When, if you like, creation is wrapped in chains by the powers that work against the will of God. Powers that would eventually, as people kind of reflected on that, become personified in Satan. Powers that prevented creation from being all that God wills it. And so, a way of reading it is that these powers at this point win and they ensnare creation. They wrap it in chains, they imprison it, and they prevent it from (coughs) being (coughs) all that creation was created to be. Another way of understanding the story is that this is the moment when humanity is covered by a deep darkness and we are blinded by this darkness. We are prevented from seeing that we are made in the image of God and we are prevented from seeing that we are still the beloved children of God. 
and we are prevented from living as the beloved children of God. And within these two understandings, Christ then comes not to restore the relationship with God, but to break the chains that imprison humanity, imprison all of creation. Christ comes to be the light that restores our sight. In fact, those two understandings are the much more older and traditional understandings of the story and of the Christ story. So, we then have the story of Noah. God seeks to start again, to start afresh. He sees that what has happened and says, this isn't good, this is not what I intended. (coughs) Pardon me. So he tries to set, push the reset button, we might say. And he resets with Noah and the ark. And there is a great flood where all life is wiped out except for what is in the ark. And after the rain stops, Noah sends out a dove, which eventually returns with an olive branch. The dove with an olive branch becomes a symbol of the land uncovered a symbol of the chance to start again and became a precursor to the covenant God will now enter into with all creation. The covenant we heard this morning. This covenant says that God will never again use violence to fix what has happened. God will never again use violence to fix what has happened. A lot of commentators suggest that there is also a deeper import in this covenant. That God will not only not use violence again, but (coughs) implied in this is the promise that God will fix what has happened. But by other means. So this is the first covenant. And it is a covenant in which God promises to fix what has happened and to not use violence. And what does creation promise in response? Nothing. It's a one-way covenant. We don't have to do anything. God simply promises, I will fix this, I will not use violence. This is a one-sided, one-way covenant. So, hold those images in your head and fast forward to to today's Gospel from Mark. Most of which we've heard before this year. As I said, Mark is pretty brief in most of the things he talks about and there really wasn't enough in the wilderness story to have a whole Gospel reading out of that for a Sunday so they included a whole lot of other stuff this Sunday. (coughs) I was kind of interested actually, I was looking at some of the children's resources and somebody actually put... Mark 1, whatever the reading was, and then included Matthew's reading. And I went, well, that's really interesting. She clearly thought, whoever wrote this children's resource, that Mark didn't include nearly enough details. So put in Matthew's version instead because, well, Matthew padded it out a lot. So there you go. So this beginning in Mark is really important. It kind of sets the tone for the rest of his gospel and sets up the two themes that he spends his gospel exploring. The themes of authority and liberation. 
And we begin then with how unexpected all of this is, because, well, Jesus comes from Nazareth, and from Nazareth, for goodness sake. Does anything good come out of Nazareth? And the answer is clearly no, that's silly. How could, how could the Saviour come from Nazareth? And then we have the baptism where Jesus sees the Spirit descending into him. The Greek word there, which we translate as on, is never translated on. If you look all the rest of the New Testament where that word is translated, it's always in. But for some reason the translators thought in this story, on seemed like a better go. So they've translated as on, but the Spirit descends into Jesus. That's what, the, that's what Mark was saying. And how does he see the Spirit descending? What is the Spirit descending as? I'm sure one of you picked that up on the way through. A dove. We all know it. A dove. And when have we just heard about a dove? Right back at Noah. Noah sending out the dove, which was a symbol, a precursor of that first covenant. And the commentators I said, I read, said, this is a deliberate use of this image. It's not just, oh, that's a nice bird, let's use a dove. This is a deliberate looking back to that first covenant with all of creation after the flood, that God will fix this and that God will not use violence. By using the dove, the gospel writers are saying, this is God fixing it. Let's be clear about that. We've all been waiting for God to fix it. Here's the fix. So, right at the beginning, Mark is naming Jesus as the one who has the authority to fix this. Whatever we understand the this being. Now, I've already talked about the number of ways we can understand what it is that is being fixed here. For most of us, we understand that this that has been fixed is the severed relationship with God. And that's certainly how, <coughs> for the last 700 years or so, we've kind of understood it. Well, it has been suggested that we understand it. And it has been understood in terms of the relationship was severed, God needed somebody to die so that the relationship could be restored. Jesus comes and takes the place of us who should die and the relationship is restored. So it's all about what God wants. But actually for the first 1300 years of Christian theology, the idea that God would want somebody to die would have been an appalling thought. In fact, St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo comes very close to ridiculing people who think that. It's not God who needs somebody to die. It's Satan. Because in their understanding of the fall, the world, the creation is imprisoned, enchained, wrapped in chains. And the only way to unlock those chains, Satan said was for somebody to die. The world was covered in a dark darkness, so dark that we were blinded to who we were, and the only way that that darkness could die, Satan said, was for somebody 
to die. And so God, in God's love, says, I will die. I will be the one who dies. That's very different from how we understand it today, isn't it? Even when we don't like that God said that, we still think that that's how it should be, that that's the only way it can be. But actually, for most of Christian history, that's not how Christians have understood the story at all. Not one little bit. Somehow, that's become the dominant way of understanding the story. For most of Christian history, the story of Jesus was God honouring that first covenant. Of God saying, it's broken, I'll fix it. I will break the chains. I will relight creation. And so we have in John's Gospel, which is all about Jesus being the light of the world. Jesus is the light that banishes the darkness. And we have in this Gospel, and in fact all through the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus taking on the powers that resist God constantly and constantly defeating them. Until ultimately in his death on the cross, the very moment that all seemed lost and Satan had won, God destroys all the powers of evil forever and unbreak and unlocks the chains, breaks the chains and liberates creation forever. So then, what are the images of God that you are being invited to re-examine this Lent? What are your understandings of God that you are being invited to re-examine? What images of God might you need to let go of? And what new images, what new ways of understanding God are you being invited to embrace? This Lent, whose are we? Who is the God we are called to follow this Lent, this year?